Radio show. We are now in overtime. We are now in overtime. This is the second half of the program that is online only. We have gotten rid of the FCC censors. Uh, we will. We are. We are. This is. We are casual and and we are let loose here in overtime. Uh, we've got some really great stuff for you. Um, the interviews. We're going to be talking to Julia Rock about her article in the Lever. Fear and loathing among union busters. Uh, really great stuff about the National Restaurant Association's conference that they had a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we're also going to be talking to Chris Townsend about the Keolis strike. Um, and we're going to be talking to, talking about Stephen Crowder's Labor Day message. And, and um, thinking about some inconsistencies, maybe, that he has now compared to then. Some pretty interesting stuff. Yeah, pretty interesting stuff. Um, want to plug again our fundraiser. Uh, you can donate online at tvlr.fm slash expand. Expand. tvlr.fm slash expand. We have a goal of raising $4,000 in the month of February. We raised $40 in the main show on that fundraiser plus another seven, 17 was it from super chats so really appreciate that uh and of course you know if you want to donate and and become a sustaining donor because you know you saw in our main show you know all of our the the number of sponsors that we have and and it is true that our listener support is is the largest among the individual donor uh, among the individual like sources of revenue it's still only one of like of many right so it's not the majority unfortunately of our revenue uh and it would definitely make us more sustainable if that were the case so you know if you wanted to do like a one time donation of 20 50 100 for this month and then become a sustaining donor at $1 a month or 2 or 3 or 4 or 5 that would help immensely that would help immensely. So you can donate to the fundraiser at tvlr.fm slash expand, and you can uh, become a sustaining member at tvlr.fm slash donate. Uh, Dr. Weiner mentioned in the main show that she's going to be writing us a check. If you want to write us a check instead of donating online, some people are like that, and that's totally fine. Uh, you can send us a check to our P.O. Box. That is P.O. Box 100 47 Huntsville, Alabama 35801. Uh, that is P.O. Box 10047. 
10047. That's the P.O. Box number. 10047, Huntsville, Alabama, 35801. You can send us checks or letters. You want to send us, you know, that's just another way to get in touch with us. Um, so, send us money! That's what I'm trying to say. Send us money. Absolutely. So let's talk about this uh, this letter that we got from uh, that, that that came out last week from faith leaders in support of the Warrior Met coal miners who have been on strike now, going into their twenty third month. They they went on strike uh, April first, twenty twenty one. So we are now only two months away from this being two years. Uh, just an insane, insanely long amount of time. In very, uh, you know, I mean, uh, you know, just another example of ghoulish behavior from corporate America. And so there was a list of like actually literally hundreds of, of faith leaders uh, is my understanding. I've looked at it and it's just columns of, of, of reverends and rabbis. And I think there's some imams on it. Uh, so, you know, lots of, lots of people supporting, uh, these coal miners and in this letter, and I'll just read the letter in full. It's not terribly long, but bear with me as I read it. This is from uh, that collection of faith leaders. As faith leaders from across the country, from a wide variety of faith traditions, we draw on our sacred scriptures which proclaim that each human being is created in the image of God and therefore deserving of dignity in all settings, especially the workplace. Clergy have met with the workers from Warrior Met Coal in Brookwood, Alabama, We know that over 800 United Mine Workers have been on strike since April 1st, 2021, the longest strike in Alabama history. We are aware of the suffering to which the workers have been subjected. While working in extremely dangerous conditions, workers have made a myriad of sacrifices while the company went through a transition. Workers' wages, health care, benefits, pensions, and time off were reduced saving the company over $1 billion. In fact, when compared to other United Mine Workers of America contracts, Warrior Met Coal has subjected its miners to work under the worst contract in our country, including mandatory 16-hour shifts. But then, as the company emerged from its transition in the last three years, the company has paid $1.6 billion in stock dividends to its Wall Street owners and management has taken exorbitant bonuses. We believe the company has a moral obligation to provide fair compensation to the workers who created such wealth. The workers sacrificed greatly to stabilize the company, but now, in spite of huge profits, the company is destabilizing the workers by insisting on substandard wages, benefits, and working conditions. The company is causing the suffering of over 800 families who are not able to pay rent, eat properly, take care of their health, and buy school items for their children, resulting in workers enduring unnecessary hardships for the last 18 months. We understand that your company has stalled in negotiations, repeatedly insisting on egregious conditions that the workers rejected over a year ago, just as your largest shareholder, BlackRock, has urged you to end the strike with an agreement that is fair to your workers 
we call on you to immediately negotiate a contract that ends the strike and honors your workers. Moreover, since coal is a natural resource given as a gift by God to humanity, your company is called to be a responsible steward of the earth's resources, reflecting that we are guardians of divine trust. We urge you to embrace the text from Micah 6, to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God by offering a fair contract and by ending the strike and the suffering of these workers. So great, uh, a great letter from uh, very many faith leaders. We appreciate their support for our coal miners here in Alabama. Uh, and, you know, we hope that this, we hope that this comes to an end sooner rather than later, because uh, this has been a very, very difficult, um, a very difficult time for, for these folks. So, yeah, I'm I'm very happy to see the faith community put this letter out. Um, I think that's exactly the kind of things that we have to do. Um, you know, we have to to have community coalition in support of workers who are in struggle. So, uh, really appreciate them doing that. Uh, I hope that it reaches folks maybe who you know have not been reached yet uh, about mm -hmm. this struggle. Uh, whether they're unaware of it or maybe they, you know, are not really sure why they should be supporting these miners uh, and the union. But yeah, again, that's the sort of stuff that I really love to see uh, when the community can come together in coalition. And, yeah. um, you know, that's what I like to see out of faith communities, right? If, if you're mm -hmm. going to be uh, <clears throat> preaching the gospel and, and talking about uh, loving your neighbor, well, Let's really talk about it. So uh, that's great to Absolutely. hear. Um, and I hope that it's just, you know, another shot in the arm uh, for the miners down there. Uh, you know, it's it's um, it's inspiring to to me, at least, that they have been able to fight for this long. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's a righteous cause. It's unfortunate that they're even having to have this fight. Uh, because, as you mentioned, it's it's really the epitome of, of corporate greed and corporate uh, malpractice in our society. This is a perfect example of what's broken in our country. Uh, a yeah. company such as this that can behave the way they've behaved. Uh, so shout out to the UMWA brothers and sisters down in Brookwood and to all of the faith community who has their back. I wanted to reply to this in the chat because we got a uh, we got a question about this during double overtime last week that we didn't get to because you know it was just kind of a a um, you know a separate like interview just about Adam and this was Alex in the chat uh, saying I'm part of the Alphabet Workers Union um, very cool and I wondered last week about thoughts about our thoughts on the Google layoffs uh, besides the others in tech and uh, this will be pretty quick because I don't have a lot of thoughts about it honestly um, I, I mean other than other than obviously there's total BS uh, that, you know uh, that, that these huge companies are laying off so many workers while at the same time giving stock uh, buybacks to it to their shareholders I saw yesterday on Twitter more perfect union said that uh, meta, at the same time that it laid off 11,000 workers, is giving its... What was it? Let me just go to my Twitter to make sure that I get the right number. Because I heard was, the same report uh, on NPR Marketplace yesterday. Yeah, um, it's just insane. Um, uh, Meta, 
at the same time that they laid off 11,000 workers, they announced 40, four, zero billion dollars in stock buybacks for 40 billion with, with just, and I, 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 I did this math because this is just 40 billion, four, zero billion is an insane amount of money. And stock buybacks is just, I mean, this is a practice that was literally illegal before Ronald Reagan, right? This is something, the manipulation of stock prices was literally illegal before Ronald Reagan. Okay, that's the prime, and and it, but because all it is, is lining investors' pockets with money. You're not creating anything. Not creating anything. If they took, if Meta took five percent, Meta is Facebook, by the way, five percent of the money that they used to line the pockets of investors. They could have kept on every single one of the 11,000 workers at a salary of nearly 200,000 a year. Wow. Wow. 5% of the 40 billion that they're spending on stock buybacks could have been used to keep on every single one of those workers at a salary of 200,000. They do, they could have they could have kept everybody on and then hired another 11,000 and still kept everybody in the six figures with just 5% of this money that's going to capitalists just to line pockets. It's insane. It's ludicrous. Ludicrous. Absolutely ludicrous. And and you mentioned Alex in the chat that you are in the Alphabet Workers Union and that is the only way to fight back against this kind of stuff is for workers to take more control of the of the the, uh, the companies that they work for. That's the only way to fight back against this kind of nonsense. Yeah, we have to build our power from the bottom up. And it's not just at Meta or just at Google. You know, there's clearly a coordinated effort across the tech industry, right? It's to me, it, it just uh, boggles imagination that you would think, Oh, all of a sudden, all these companies just happen to need to cut their workforce right. by 10%, 15%, 12%. Uh, no, I, I believe this is capital uh, ushering in discipline upon their workforce. And I think that, yeah, as you mentioned, the Alphabet Workers Union and other efforts, uh, that's that's going to be critical yeah. to saving jobs and to saving people's livelihoods. Um, you know, and maybe there's conversations to be had about, you know, Silicon Valley and, uh, you know, the, the value in, in what they're doing as companies and uh, the types of jobs they're creating, how, you know, maybe socially necessary or useful are, are some of these jobs. I get that. Um, I don't think either of us are big fans of Silicon Valley uh, are like. You know, the the companies there, uh, like Google and Twitter and Facebook, I mean, mm-hmm. there's a lot of evil, <clears throat> evil shit coming yeah. out of there. I mean, I'm sorry. So uh, I get that. But at the end of the day, you know, I, working class people are working class people. And the folks who are being impacted by these layoffs, you know, I just send out, um, send out my love and solidarity and support for all of you. Uh, and I encourage you to, as you as you said, Jacob, organize with your coworkers to fight back. 
Yeah, and um, it, it it is worth noting though that while this is these layoffs are per pretty pervasive in the tech industry, it does seem like because there was a lot of talk before this jobs report that came out last week about how maybe this is indicative of like a coming recession, um, and there are other signs of recession besides these mass layoffs at tech companies. Yeah, like the but fact this, that the Federal Reserve seems uh, pretty damn intensive yeah. and well, intentional about new, trying to start one. Yeah. Right? Have you seen the new jobs report though? Uh, I have not. The one Five, it just came out. Yeah, it like, just came out. They were only anticipating like ninety-five or one hundred ninety-five thousand jobs to be created in January. It was actually five hundred seventeen thousand jobs. Um, so that's like four hundred thousand above expectations. Right. Um, so There's just, unemployment is the lowest it's been since like the nineteen fifties. Um, so you know, lots of really conflicting news, but it does yeah. seem like these layoffs seem to be isolated in the tech industry. Um. So, you know, some some good economic news, despite the Fed's, you know, dogged insistence on um, on trying to make that not be the case. Right. And and the Democrats dogged insistence on not doing anything about it. I'm not doing it because remember, I mean, I want to just every time we talk about the Fed, every time we talk about interest rates, I want people to remember that Trump, when they tried to raise interest, raise interest rates under him, he pitched a fit and they stopped. And they stopped, right? And so, you know, uh, Joe Biden should be pitching a damn fit about this, about otherwise, the Fed trying we, to create a recession. Otherwise, we're uh, forced to believe that that's what you want, right? That yeah. you're you're okay with this uh, approach, and that's the approach that you want them to take. You know, so um, yeah, I I was not uh, aware of that news with the latest jobs report, but you know. Definitely a lot of mixed signals out there. Right. Um, hopefully these layoffs are isolated just in the tech sector. Um, but, you know, again, like I was saying earlier, there's v arguments to be had about, you know, overvaluation uh, of some of these tech companies. Right. When they their stock prices are just through the roof and they're, you know, not necessarily correlated with uh, anything tangible. But. At the end of the day, when the workers are simply subject to whatever management wants, whatever ownership wants, uh, that's when you have these situations when money is being used for stock buybacks at the same time that people are losing their livelihoods. Just yeah. a real slap in the face. Yeah. Let's hit this Crowder clip really quick before uh, we get Julia on. And uh, and then we'll have we have a couple other uh, quick stories that we'll be able to get to either in between talking to Julia and Chris or after we talk to Chris, because these are kind of time sensitive stuff. But I did want to get to this Crowder stuff because it's it's pretty wild. And so just to start off with, you know, we all we all know what's been going on with the with the Crowder Daily Wire contract negotiation saga. Um, we reviewed the contract that. Um, that Crowder was offered with a union contract negotiator. So that's, you know, that we thought that was a pretty interesting contrast there. Uh, we also talked about Candace Owens attacking Amazon workers for some reason in her screed against Crowder. Um, and so today, and this is probably going to be the last thing we, we talk about this with, with this, uh, with this saga, but, um, uh, but I, I wanted to to react to this because I, I found this Labor Day message that Stephen Crowder had a few years ago. Um, and it's interesting because the, uh, 
you know, the language he uses is just pretty different than than what he's been using in this so- in, in this you know contract negotiation saga. And so, just to remind people, um, you know, some of this, a lot of this has been around free speech, but there was some you know issues that he took with the working conditions, you know, the and particularly the amount of work that he would have to do under this contract. And so, you know, let's just remind people what he said about the amount of work he would have to do under this contract. Let's play that first Crowder clip. Don't sign something that has another $100,000 daily penalty if it's not signed off on beforehand. You get a sick... You get hit by a car, you have a sick day, you could lose $100,000 a day. Hey, anyone wonder why there's burnout in this? Anyone wonder why you have kids come up and they leave and never to come back? You think if you had that kind of a penalty, you think if someone said, hey, we're going to penalize you $10,000 every day you miss coming into work, you think you'd be stressed? This is worse than the left. And so, you know, look, he's really upset about not being able, about the idea that if he misses a day that he was scheduled to work, he would get a $100,000 penalty. Now, a $100,000 penalty, hmm, that's interesting. I wonder how much, what that is relatively, right? Like, if I got a $100,000 penalty, that would mean that I am having to pay my employer for missing a day of work, right? That would be unfair, okay? And, uh, and so... Uh, let's put that in context. The contract offer was for $50 million over four years. Uh, and so a $100,000 con- uh, $100, penalty for missing a scheduled day really doesn't seem that bad when you're th- talking about $50 million, $50 million over four years. Not so bad. Also not so bad when you consider that he the contract only had him working for four days a week. <laughs> for four days a week, almost certain, you know, uh, working is producing four daily shows, four show or one show every day, four days a week. That was the schedule. And so, you know, obviously this isn't going to take him, you know, 10 or 12 hours. These are not four tens or four twelves. This is in all likelihood like four, uh, four fives for somebody like him. Maybe, maybe some of the people on his production staff would be putting in four tens or something, but not Steven Crowder, right? Obviously. And so, and, and and on top of that, the contract allowed for four weeks of paid vacation, which is something that not a lot of working people get. And so, you know, he's talking about burnout because he has four-day work weeks and a four-week vacation. Obviously very silly. Very silly when you compare it to normal working people. The average salary in the United States is like $50,000. Um, most people, you know, do not get four weeks of paid vacation. You know, it's just, this is it's very silly stuff coming from him. And it's also silly when you compare it to his past rhetoric, which is what we're going to look at today. This is a video that he put out on Labor Day three or four years ago. And we're just going to, we're going to play this clip in full and react to it. So let's go ahead. Let's go ahead and start that, Adam. All right. Oh, hello there. Allow me to express an unpopular opinion for a moment, if I may. Labor Day, as a national holiday, is a scam, and I hate it. 
no, no, I'm not gonna try and steal your get out of work free day. You can rest easy enjoying your barbecue and beer while your boss ultimately picks up the slack to keep your pay stubs coming in, all because some arbitrary holiday was marketed to celebrate the working class and you now feel entitled to it. Okay, stop there. So here's- <laughs> All right, hold on just a sec here, let me, woo. He's going through all of this about like, oh, how bad it is that you have a day off. That you have a day off for many people's unpaid and for many people, actually, they're going to work today on Labor Day. Like a lot of people. I mean, probably, what would you say, Adam, is the percentage of people that actually have to work on, la on Labor Day? Like 50% of people, maybe? Have yeah, to work that's on a Labor good Day? question. It's I'd a like lot. to know. Um, I mean, because obviously you're talking about the service industry. Um, Healthcare industry, yeah, right. There's so many folks that that do have to work on on Labor Day. Um, it's yeah, I hate everything about the way this looks. Um, <laughs> it grosses me out. I'm not sure, you know, not sure what this look is about. Uh, yeah, but free, so free American he's... said Hugh Hefner. Yeah, that, that's that's right. a good yeah. reference there. He's he's going for this Hugh Hefner look maybe and. Uh, you know, his little rifle up there. Um, okay. So he's, you know, the, uh, uh, the idea that he's attacking working people who are not making millions of dollars every year for possibly getting one day off. While today, four years ago, he was doing that. And today he is crying and talking about how he would get burnout if he had to work four days a week and he couldn't just arbitrarily not work one of them with four weeks of vaca pay well, vacation. Well, I mean, and, uh, according to him, you know, if he missed work, his boss is going to have to work extra to right. pick up the slack just to make sure that pay stub comes through on time. Yeah. Uh, you know, might be worth mentioning that labor creates wealth and that's where value comes from. Uh, but, hey... It is what it is. Yeah. Let's keep going. It's a poor excuse for picking a man's pocket every first Monday of September. Seeing as I'm apparently the only one who knows that around here, allow me to explain my opinion. Now, Labor Day was created at a rare moment in history where unions actually served a purpose beyond bitching about six-figure benefit packages and determining which other members' tires they'd slash because of bullshit card check voting. See, that's because the Industrial Revolution, unlike the Agricultural Revolution, which preceded it... Okay, oh, yeah, stop there. Just stop there. Because I want to I wanna remark again, here he is... <laughs> I mean, he's deriding union workers for... He said, he said bitching about six-figure payment packages um while he today is bitching about seven figure payment packages which and and just for the record many union people do not make six figures probably most probably most union workers do not make six figure and those who do uh in most cases do actually work for hard work yes um you know work that creates value for a capitalist, clearly, or they wouldn't be compensated as well as they are. Um, you know, I'm thinking about people who work in, you know, manufacturing, uh, people who do specialized trade work, uh, you know, hard work, work that required training, uh, work that requires a, a level of skill and sacrifice, uh, all of which are things I would not say about a 
what would you call him? A content creator? Yeah. Um, right. You know, and it's not to say there's not like work that's put into that. We put work into, you mm-hmm. know, bringing the show uh, to the airwaves every week, but come on now. Yeah. Oh, and actually Sid in the chat mentioned it's an eight figure paycheck that he's, that he's bitching about. Not a, not a seven, not even a seven figure. He's in the tens of millions of dollars that he's, that he was bitching about. And also free American in the chat says, wasn't September chosen to get Labor Day away from May Day. And that's the actual, that's the actual factual thing, right? Is that Labor Day was, was chosen to be in September to get it away from our act, the, the real actual radical militant history of labor in the United States and globally. With a select few people at the top and then a manual labor class in the factories who were working very long hours just to squeak out a living, sometimes 12 hours a day, seven days a week. Pause it! That's happening today! Today in union workplaces with and, and in non-union workplaces, but that's what we've been talking about with this paper mill. And so, you know, yes, some of these people get paid six figures, but they're working six, seven, uh, six to seven days a week, 10, 12, 16 hours a day. Same thing with the coal mines, same thing with these Kellogg's workers. And, you know, he's he is attacking these people. Yeah, this is an old trope uh, that, that folks trot out all the time when they're bashing unions. That, oh, they used to be needed, but now right. everybody's got it so good. Right. Back in the old days, you know, maybe there was a place for them, but, you know, we don't really need them anymore. And my question is what exactly has changed? Because last I checked, whether the years 1880 or 1980 or 2023, uh, we have a socioeconomic system designed around the pursuit of private profit. And that's how our production is operated and you have capitalists who are trying to squeeze as much as they can from their labor force and the fact that there are some differences now uh, between now and the industrial revolution is a testament to the struggle and the victories of working class people coming together to extract concessions from the boss and from the state Um, yeah it's it's a um, it's a pitiful argument because, as you point out, any anything that happened back then, just about you could you could point to today, whether that's the continued existence yeah. of child labor, the yeah. continued overwork of folks, the continued poverty of folks, the continued inequality. In fact, the inequality now rivals that of the Gilded Age. Uh, so, yeah. I'll. I'll, I'll Party foul. Now, notice that was an actual moment in history, unlike the fabricated one today from entitled leftist socialists who bitch that the American dream is more out of reach than ever because they might have to work a double shift at their retail job to pay off their gender studies degree that they think the taxpayer should ultimately subsidize. (laughs) Also, pause it. It is more difficult to work a double shift at a retail place than to do whatever it is that Steven Crowder is doing right here that he's going to be making eight figures for. Okay. Yeah, and also statistically, the American dream is very much dead for for a large number of people in this country, and it's not because of a gender studies degree. Yeah. Okay. Uh, if you're, yeah, if you're and it's not also, sure about that, right. just look into social mobility in this country. Also, look at who holds student debt. The majority, the largest single degree uh, holders 
the 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 largest percentage of union of of college debt is held by nurses so yeah. annual laborers okay. and not working class because the idea that someone who owns that factory or today someone who owns a business or happens to be an independent contractor is not working is absurd insulting and ironically any intellectual think about it the only difference between a lawyer a doctor an investor or independent business owner and the working class, as is the current nomenclature, that the former simply work with their minds instead of their bodies. Does that mean that their work is any less valuable? I thought the left had the corner on intelligentsia. Or does that only apply to modern humanities majors who posit theories and philosophies that needn't yield results in the real world? Okay, we can just stop for there just really quickly. The I don't know what he's talking about, the modern nomenclature of working class, but the distinction between the working class and the owning class is whether or not you work to make a living, right? You So you <laughs> whether you work with your brain or your hands or whatever, if your subsistence comes from wages you receive for hours you sell, hours of your time that you sell to a business, you are a worker. You are a worker. You're in the working class. The thing that makes you not in the working class is if your money comes from owning. So small business owners, they might perform labor. Some of their work might come from labor time, you know, wages and things like this. But they, uh, but also... Some of their money comes from profits, just from owning. And the more, the larger your business, the more that percentage of income ha uh, uh, creates for you. And this, you know, that that's the distinction. Whether or not your money comes from owning or working, that's the distinction. That just mirrors Marxism to a T. After all, what gives the working class or proletariats the rights to have the government violently seize businesses and means of production from others outside of the fact but the very cerebral work required to create it in the first place is simply not valued in a communist society. While we're speaking of value, let's go back to the value of time again. Okay, so I, I want to keep this moving, but I just want to point out that um, capitalist governments sometimes do things violently. I'll just leave it at that. Today, most Americans are horrified to learn that in the time of the Industrial Revolution, many people were working 12-hour days without breaks. Because in the age of today, the average 34-hour work week, who would ever consider putting themselves through that? And that's where we come full circle. Today, while you enjoy your melanoma and corn beer, there are still plenty of people who work those kinds of hours without the benefit of a labor union. They're called business owners. <laughs> Okay. All right. Yeah. Never. No. I'm sorry, but no, that doesn't count. I, I thought for a second there he was about to say something real that you know there are people who are working their ass off and they don't have labor unions and, uh, maybe, and many of maybe them maybe agricultural workers. That's exactly <laughs> who came to my mind. People who are sun up to sundown, uh, you know, picking crops in the heat, in the cold. Uh, yeah, that uh, that disturbs me, but I'm I'm gonna. Keep it going. You know, the people you'll inevitably find time to vilify today between your hot dog eating contest and waking up in a boozy puddle of your own filth on some stranger's lawn. Also, that sounds a lot like projection. Yeah, um, I have never once had a Labor Day like that. 
I've never once had a Labor Day lie. And it's also worth mentioning the average 34-hour week. I don't know where he gets that from, um, but it's also— I would be more than happy, yeah. though, for us to reduce the full-time work week to 34 or 30 yeah. hours or lower, but— um, that uh, yeah, I don't know where he's getting that either. Uh, we've got a lot of discussion in the chat that there's a video clip of him getting punched by a union guy. Um, please, please send that to us. I <laughs> would love to see that today. Oh, uh, have you not seen that? I don't think I have. Really? You know, I stay away. Oh, dude, I don't a... see. You know, you know more about these creeps than I do. Oh, I yeah, don't. Dude. You know, I I purposely try not to know who these people are. Um, oh yeah, it's big. So yeah, I'd need to see that video. You were taking the day off to play drunken lawn darts. They were likely working to make sure that the lights are still on. Someone has yeah, to make sure. sure that you can find your way when you tardily stumble in on Tuesday looking for the Alka-Seltzer. Listen, enjoy your silly day off and have fun. My only point here is that Labor Day just highlights the gross mass generalizations that come from the left in the 21st century. Even though they accuse the right of being racist at every opportunity possible, it is they who exclusively separate and view people through the prism of sex, race, age, and yes, socioeconomic status. This classism is just another way to divide and conquer, turn brother against classism. brother, and to make you think that you're somehow owed something that only Big Brother can provide. So enjoy your Labor Day, and enjoy your weekends off and eight-hour work days for that matter. And yes, like How you'll generous. see in all the social media trends today, you can in part thank a union for those luxuries. Just know that they're afforded to you because of someone who enjoys none of them. Someone who doesn't have a standard weekend and has likely gone years of working tireless hours and borrowing money just to make payroll. So, okay, for your time off, benefits, and silly little end of summer holiday, thank a union. As for your job and the ability to provide for you and yours, thank a business owner. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just uh, absolutely wild to believe that, you know, the that describes the majority of business owners, that this is like an accurate depiction of, you know, the owning class as just this these workaholics. Right. It's absurd. It's I mean, absurd. there's basically a handful of families that control almost all the wealth in this country. Right. And you want me to feel bad for them. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of terms we could use for a person like that and the, uh, the idea that he used classism to describe antagonism towards the owning class you know class <laughs> class struggle is a reality whether right. you want to name it whether you want to talk about it it's just a, a reality of a society in which there's hierarchy and uh unequal distribution of wealth and power yeah. Does it doesn't matter if you want to acknowledge it. Doesn't matter if you want to talk about it or not. It's happening. So, and and it's worth just remembering that today Stephen Crowder is crying about not being able to willy nilly take a day off from his four day work week from his eight million dollar contract. And three years ago, he was admonishing working people for taking Labor Day off. So that's 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 the thing. Uh, but speaking of class struggle, Julia Rock. Julia Rock is in the Zoom with us today. Uh, I'm she, really excited about this. This, is, this yeah, article this great. was great. Yes. Um, uh, I loved everything about it, starting with the title, Fear and Loathing Among the Union Busters. 
uh, big Hunter S. Thompson fan myself, so I, I dug the reference, and um, it was a pleasant surprise. Like I, you know, just happened to be mm-hmm. checking my email early in the morning and and came across it. Dude, it one of the first was, things that that came across my inbox that morning. It and, was popping on Twitter. Everybody was like, I mean, it, my feed was filled with it for days. Well, like, that's why I count on you, yeah. Jacob, to tell me what's popping on Twitter. It is. This was popping, <laughs> absolutely popping on Twitter. People like posting screenshots of different parts of the article. I, it's funny. I actually, I feel like I read half the article before I ever actually opened the link because so many people, because so much of it is good and quotable and like, wow, that's an interesting bit there. That half the article was posted on Twitter, you know, from different people before I ever actually read it. So, Julia Rock uh, with The Lever News. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about this uh, about this piece that you wrote. I'm so glad to join. Thanks. So, you know, what was the what was the impetus for the you know what what made you think about um, writing about? Well, what what is it about? I guess you can explain to the audience what the article was about and then what made you want to write about it. Yeah, so this is an article about sort of um, a seemingly maybe unusual gathering of uh, restaurant executives and basically their lawyers, their their corporate lawyers at a hotel in Atlanta, Georgia last October. And they were brought together by the legal arm of the National Restaurant Association, which maybe after the Chamber of Commerce, but but on its own terms, is probably the most anti-worker lobbying group in America. Um, and it was sort of uh, an, an especially unusual event because the the keynote speech was given by Jennifer Bruzzo, the top enforcer of labor law in the federal government. She's the general counsel of the National Labor Relations Board. So there were certainly um, some moments of, of, I guess, class conflict, as you would say, at this gathering. And I wrote about it because um, it's very rare to have the opportunity to hear you know, lawyers from Jackson Lewis talk union union busting strategy, um, mm-hmm. and 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 sort of that's exactly what what I was writing about. And so, you know, just to just to underscore, this isn't <clears throat> the main part of your article, but this is some other reporting that kind of came out in parallel. Uh, really, some of the gross class antagonism coming from the top. Uh, there is a New York Times report about how the National Restaurant Association is using fees from uh, safety certificates that it that these restaurants make their employees get to fund anti-worker electoral campaigns. Can you explain that? Uh, can you explain some of that reporting for us? Yeah, so this is just completely crazy. So the National Restaurant Association basically runs these food safety certification classes through this this um, business they run called ServeSafe. And workers in many states are required to take pay for and 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 take these food safety certification classes uh, to be able to work in restaurants. The National Restaurant Association is using the revenue it collects from workers through ServeSafe to lobby against higher wages and paid sick leave for those same workers. Uh, you know, it's it's extremely cynical uh, and evil and 
Um, it's not really a common way for a lobbying group to fund itself. You know, oftentimes they're just funded from fees from their members, which are, you know, corporations or from big donations from, you know, rich people who hate working people. Yeah, I, I almost, almost have to give it to them for being so devious to figure out a way to make the very people they're attacking pay for the attack. Um, and like I was surf safe certified previously working in the re restaurant industry. I know for a fact that there are public school students in Alabama at the K-12 at the high school level who are receiving these surf safe certifications uh, through their classes at school, right? Through culinary arts and home ec and things like that. And, you know, you just think about how much money is being funneled into that, mm. you know, even so in this case, you know, we potentially have taxpayers uh, wow. subsidizing <clears throat> this money, uh, which is being used, as you point out, to, to fight working people who work in the restaurant industry to prevent unionization, to fight uh, minimum wage increases and, and other labor laws. So, uh, yeah, I just wanted to chime in with that, that it's 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 happening all over. And anyone who's ever worked in the restaurant industry is, you know, probably pretty familiar with that serve safe uh, certification. And now I can't I can't look at them on the walls of these restaurants. Mm -hmm. When I walk in, I look at them and I automatically I'm now thinking about what is happening behind the scenes with that money. And so what was the uh, wh what was the main what, what, what were some of the main thrusts, some of the main topics of this conference? What were some of the main points of discussion uh, during these uh, during these presentations? Which, by the way, to me, what you described, uh, it sounds like a Legion of Doom meeting. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like the world's greatest supervillains uh, all went to Vegas well, so, so looming, looming large the entire time is, of course, the fact that baristas at Starbucks stores have uh, won unions at nearly 280 stores in, in just over the past year. So if you're an executive running a chain restaurant, like you're thinking about Starbucks. The other thing, of course, uh, sort of in the air was that the entire thing had started with this speech, again, from um, a, a labor law enforcer, Jennifer Abruzzo. So on, on the minds of everyone speaking was, I think, the fact that, you know, workers in, in restaurants and, of course, um, across industries in the U.S. are sort of increasingly outspoken, not just about issues uh, that sort of directly, you know, impact the, their working conditions day to day, like uh, wages and, and, you know, um, scheduling time off. These are these are things that workers have been uh, sort of at historic levels in recent years striking over um, in, in the past couple of years, but also sort of broader, uh, you know, social and political issues, or at least this is sort of how the, the lawyers and, and restaurant people speaking saw it, that right now the American workforce is a lot more outspoken about uh, social and political issues at work than they had previously been. And I think, you know, it seemed to me, uh, based on what everyone is saying, the reason that they're sort of anxious about that type of speech in the workplace is that, like, as soon as you have workers, you know, talking to one another about political issues, it could lead to them talking to one another about issues like 
wages, uh, scheduling, paid sick time, and of course, unions. And, you know, you mentioned the speech that she gave. You quote her in part saying, I'm not nickel and diming workers. And then uh, somebody coming up after them saying, quote, hang in there. Don't despair. (laughs) It's going to get better from here. Like, you know, the idea that, oh, no, you're going to have to obey the law. We're going to we're going to try to make it a little bit better for you for the rest of the conference. Right. We're going to presumably give you some tips and tricks for, you know, getting around the law. Right. I mean, it's funny because when workers say, you know, during union campaigns or at any point, like, you know, we're, we're forming a union and, and, and sort of on the one side, there's the worker. And then on the other side, there's the bosses. The bosses will say, oh, no, we're a family. It's not like that. Mm. And then, of course, you have at this conference, as, as you point out, this, you know, uh, top executive at Golden Corral, a ma- major restaurant chain, saying like, OK, you know, on the one side, you have labor law and the enforcers of labor law. And then on the other side, you have us like they're, they're just spelling it out quite clearly. Mm-hmm. And one of the things and a- another something else that they pointed out that you mentioned in your article is is how a- 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 that you mentioned uh, up at the top as well is this changing dynamic that the workforce has. And and one of the people mentioned uh, in, in one of their speeches uh, that he was, you know, you said that he was happily recounting how in the old days when he started as, you know, at the bottom, uh, he said, we were doing all this stuff that you're not supposed to as a miner, uh, walking around with big knives and su- shoving raw sausage into a meat grinder grinder. And we can't do that anymore. And, you know, so like w- what were the what were some of how did the audience what was the feeling among the audience about this new, you know, this new workforce that they perceive as being more interested in in being, you know, in being respected and and you know, not having children work and you know having safety standards and things like this. Well, and yeah, so so one sort of relevant piece of information is that that the workforce in restaurants, as you know, anyone who's who's eaten in a restaurant knows, is is younger than uh, the the workforce in a lot of other sectors. And so, tropes about young people and about uh, Gen Z people were were sort of constantly being thrown mm-hmm. around. But but sort of the the description of this workforce and this generation of workers is that you know it's a workforce that wants things to be very easy. Uh, There was a quote Mm. from a Jackson Lewis lawyer saying they want everything to be light and fluffy. Um, This is sort of the snowflake generation. And, uh, you know, one thing that was interesting that um, this the speaker you mentioned saying we did all these things we weren't supposed to is he he was sort of referencing like how low the wages were when when he started out in the restaurant industry. But the wages he referenced are actually higher than you know, the federal minimum wage right now. So it was like, on the one hand, there was this sense that the workforce is very different than than it used to be. You know, it wants things to be easy. Things used to be tough in restaurants. Now they're light and fluffy. And yet, you know, thanks to lobbying efforts by the National Restaurant Association, the federal minimum wage, um, when you account for inflation, is lower than, you know, it was back when these people might have been young people working in restaurants. And the t- tipped minimum wage, you know, the the sub minimum wage of 213 an hour that tipped workers make has not moved in 30 years. Uh, mm-hmm. So there's both the sense that workers now uh, are softer than they used to be. And yet 
their wages are much worse than the wages right. of the generation speaking at this conference were when they might have been working in restaurants. Exactly, exactly. And that goes into, you know, and 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 it's amazing because you point out the fact that the tip minimum wage hasn't changed in you know, in 30 years. or I, I worked as a waiter for $2.13 an hour. And I remember being, uh, you know, uh, basically cajoling my boss into giving me a dollar an hour raise. And so I was making $3 an hour as a waiter my last year. And, uh, and I was the only person, this is what he told me, I was the only person in the restaurant to have ever even asked for, you know, asked for a raise right at that point. And, and it's just amazing, you know, the idea that it is so, the law is so minimal that these people, that these bosses, corporations have to adhere to, and yet they don't do it. And yet they don't do it. They still routinely skirt minimum wage requirements. They skirt overtime requirements and all of this stuff. And so because of this, uh, their plaintiffs' attorneys will go after these corporations for wage and hour litigation, and this is another thing that you mentioned in your article, saying that you know the uh, uh, they caricatured plaintiffs' attorneys as the the like Doctor Evil from Austin Powers in one of their slides for going after these for getting these workers' wages that they earned. They had plaintiffs' attorneys caricatured as Dr. Evil in one of their presentations for this. I mean, I'm so glad you brought this up because it was just, I think, you know, one of the most wild things that happened at the conference. But but yeah, basically, you know, this lawyer is saying like, oh, you might be the subject of a, a wage and hour claim. And why? Because plaintiff's attorneys are evil and, you know, they're going to be looking for for wages that you've stolen from your workers. And, you know, that that um, sort of entire presentation about wage and hour issues, it's it's exactly the point you're making about how the bar is so low. I mean, 213 an hour for the tip minimum wage. And yet so much of the presentation was about periods of time, like five or 10 minutes in which these lawyers are advising the audience on whether or not you can pay your workers, you know, the sub minimum wage or whether you're going to be on the hook for the regular minimum wage of 725 an hour. I mean, they're literally litigating periods of time that are like the difference between a 20 and 30 minute lunch break and whether or not you're going to have to compensate your workers for that time. And the idea, like, how is it, because it it just seems to me that so much of this is just, just really, really so ghoulish as to, it's difficult to see how it, how you could not get more productivity and more loyalty and, uh, you know, from your employees if you just did right by them. You know, like instead of instead of trying to nickel and dime workers for like, oh, can we can we get by with only giving them a 20 minute break or, you know, should we give them a 30 minute break? Like why not just not only make sure you don't violate the law, but do a little bit better. And if you're just a little bit better, you'll be like in the top tier of restaurants. And it seems like you could attract talent. Like, why is that? It was, was that ever at any point? Uh, was there ever a presentation on like, oh, you know, here's productivity gains that we got at this restaurant by, you know, treating our workers like people. 
No, <laughs> the, the short answer is no. <laughs> the, the little bit longer answer is that, you know, one thing that did come up that that didn't really make it into the article, but a few people mentioned was the it's hard to recruit workers in restaurants right now. Um, and and this is true. You know, the jobs, as as we've been talking about, they don't pay very well. They can be really brutal. Um, and especially, you know, during COVID when, when a lot of, you know, restaurant chains were declining to offer paid sick time when they were, uh, you know, sort of lobbying against efforts to provide paid sick time to workers, lots of people left the industry. So right now it's challenging, you know, to recruit workers to work, especially in, in fast food restaurants. And this came up a couple of times in the context of lawyers. And I think it was a McDonald's executive talking about, um, basically how much political speech to allow in the workplace and mm. and sort of what they were basically saying is like if you seem to have a slightly more generous policy around you know not restricting your workers from being open about their political views like that might be one way to recruit workers i didn't hear anybody say you know if you offer better wages uh you'll be able to recruit workers more easily i did do some reporting uh, last year on the National Restaurant Association, you know, lobbying against raising the federal minimum wage to 15 an hour and getting rid of the sub-minimum wage. And I um, did a few stories about how a Denny's executive told investors on an earnings call that actually in states where the minimum wage goes up, Denny's tends to be better off because their customers are making more money and mm. so they can spend more money at Denny's. So Imagine I think that. to your point, like it can be very good for the bottom line to um, pay your workers more or treat them better, but that's not often something that uh, these executives seem to want to do. I, it, it's just so bizarre to me because, you know, and, and this, I, I think this really kind of um, puts to the, uh, uh, puts the light of the idea that, you know, the the capitalists are just like rigidly rational and logical and, and purely profit seeking machines because so much of this is about is about power. I mean, you know, this is outside of the restaurant industry, but uh, down here in Alabama, if the uh, uh, Warrior Met Coal, their miners with the UMWA have been on strike for nearly two years now. And in just the first, I think, 15 months after the first 15 months, the UMWA put out calculations showing that if the mines had been operating at full capacity, which they've not been this whole time, they've had some people cross the picket line and some people come from different areas and, and work in this mine who hadn't before, but they're not operating at full capacity. They're operating at 20 to 40% or something. If they had been able to operate at full capacity, they'd be they'd have been able to uh, uh, put out a billion dollars more worth of coal and, you know, a significant amount more of profit. But they just, they haven't done that because they don't want to give up this control. They don't want to allow the union to win and they don't want to, you know, it, it, so it's in that case and in, in so many of these cases with the restaurant industry, it's not just about profit. It's about power, right? And, you know, this is a remarkable thing I come across all the time reporting on, you know, corporations and corporate lobbying groups is they will lobby against things that would be better for their bottom lines. You, you know, mm -hmm. if it means handing more powers to an agency that oversees them, if it means, uh, 
you know, voluntarily recognizing a union, if it means raising wages, you know, it can be empirically true that those things will be better for business and they will still oppose them. And they even mention, you know, one of the things that that they mention in, in this is is one of these union busting attorneys said the number one reason uh, for people going to unions is not money. It never has been. It's always been respect. And and so, you know, some of this respect, you know, respect and money aren't exactly totally divergent things. You know, <laughs> like if you if you're only paying me two dollars an hour, you know, it, it's difficult for me to you know kind of wrap my head around the idea that um that you respect me right yeah i mean it's it's quite funny to to present those things as uh completely mutually exclusive uh because they most certainly aren't and 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 you know the other thing that was sort of funny about that lawyer uh you know saying yeah unions aren't aren't about money they're about respect is um she didn't really offer any sort of tactic uh, to to prevent unions from forming in in workplaces that had anything to do with actually being more respectful towards your workers. So while they don't seem willing to offer more money, it's not even clear that they're willing to offer more respect either. Right, right. And I was going to say that same thing that, you know, it, they're recognizing some truth there. And, and, you know, Jacob and I have had this experience. You talk to any folks in the labor movement. That's a pretty common thing for folks to say, you know, it's about respect. It's about the way I'm treated on the job. It's about more than just the paycheck. That is, you know, a pretty common sentiment, but at no point, you know, do they ever come up with an idea of, I don't know, what if we were nice to people? What if, like, mm. what if, we gave people time off when they needed right. it. You know, what if we did these things that maybe don't even really cost a whole lot, but would just, you know, be a nice gesture, uh, make people feel valued, you know, and most, you know, I guess when the union campaign rolls around is when they might throw the pizza party, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and, and that kind of thing, or, you know, bring in balloons or something. But uh, yeah, I think that's pretty remarkable to be able to like, correctly recognize it and and speak it out you know in front of the room but have no offer of how you might accomplish that of treating people with respect right. or responding to that you know perceived grievance even you know in their minds as i'm sure it's perceived right they they just mm-hmm. feel disrespected because they're you know sensitive snowflakes or whatever okay well you know how are you going to respond to that reality uh and it seems it's just raw force and, um, you know, political well, lobbying and, and hoping that uh, there's enough folks who are exploitable to come in and replace the, the people who leave. And, you know, so you, you you mentioned that they identify like respect as as something that is operative in, in this. And, and if they're not, they're saying respect is, is operative and it's important, but they're not identifying ways that you can make people show you, uh, or that you can show people that you respect them, uh, like, you know, making their wage livable, like giving them adequate breaks, time off, or, you know, any sort of, auto- or, or like sort of autonomy in, in their workplace and in their work. And, uh, to stave off union campaigns, which is really kind of the ultimate thing about this or, or a big thing. And so what are some of the ways that 
that this conference said you should. Uh, you know, if they're they're saying respect, but they're not doing these things that that workers are talking about. What are what are their alternatives that they were trying to put forward in this conference to stave off unions? I would say there were two main points to to sort of their union avoidance, as they would say, or union busting, as anyone else would say, proposals. Uh, and sort of the first was because of what I had been saying before about the perception of, you know, Gen Z as this more um, socially engaged or politically active generation. Uh, what what multiple lawyers sort of suggested was giving workers the opportunity to participate in what might seem to the workers like real opportunities, you know, to talk about uh, social and political issues in the workplace, but to sort of make sure those things were happening in a very controlled way where, mm. where you know, the employer was setting the terms. Um, so particular suggestions that came up were literally like setting up a sustainability committee for workers to be on and then letting them like do their sustainability things and then, you know, report back to the rest of the workplace about how great their sustainability efforts were. Um, so that classic so tactic sort of... of channel unrest into a meaningless committee. Yes, exactly. Um, so that, that was sort of uh, the, the, the key point to, to much of the union avoidance was like, give them opportunities to sort of think they have a say in something meaningful, but have it like not be very real. Um, and, and, and then sort of the other thing uh, underlying it all was like, don't, say anything anti-union and don't make it seem like you're trying to stop the union campaign because you know the the american public is more pro-union than it has been in a very long time um and so doing explicit union busting you know they would say you you might end up going viral for something you don't want on social media something you say might end up in a news headline uh your workers are going to get mad at you so don't do anything you know don't say what mm. you're doing is trying to stop the union right Another, uh, and I think, you know, we're getting close to wrapping up, but I, I did just want to mention this because this was a really kind of fascinating bit that that definitely traveled far on Twitter, and that is all of these people talking about um, how their kids are into it. Uh, you know, the discussion around the children of these union busters being pro-union. Uh, you know, in in a discussion about how in the news unions are, you know, one of uh, Jackson Lewis's uh, uh, colleagues, you say, uh, are saying, who's reading this stuff? My kids. I have an 18 year old. My kids are into it. And there was another uh, section where this union buster says that their kid came up to them with an opportunity to do like a show and tell thing, kind of like, like oh, speak he, to the class. Yeah, like school. speak to the class. And you would be great, mom, because you're a great public speaker, but you're a union buster, so you can't do it. <laughs> and, you know, and, and she and she, she says, like, I don't union bust. I focus on positive employee relations. So, I mean, she can't even speak candidly to her children. And that's like fascinating. Mm. I mean, no, it's that's that's really mind blowing. Uh sort of both that 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 she would sort of admit it and and the audience would laugh like are you all having sort of similar experiences with your children is, is that why you're all mm -hmm. laughing um but yeah sort of the fact that like 
you would be presented at home, you know, with with uh, shame from your kids about what your profession is. And instead of being like maybe deeply ashamed about that, you would just sort of try to pull the same tactics on them as you are to this, you know, annoying Gen Z workforce you deal with on a day to day basis. You know, yeah. I don't like to pathologize politics very much, but um I, I can't help but wonder if some of the sentiments they were expressing about Gen Z and millennials uh, was a reflection of perhaps some of their own strained relationships with their own <laughs> children and grandchildren <laughs> who won't call them anymore because they do evil <laughs> shit for a living. Maybe that's just me. I don't know. I'm not Freud or anything, but that's just my thoughts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it is. I, I just found that super fascinating because like what? How is it that you have a child that you have, you know, you know, been in, in part, you know, talking about your work with presumably and, and why would you not just like how why would you not just say like, yeah, I'm a union buster. Unions are bad. Like, why can't why? I, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's bonkers to me that that you can't even be candid with your own family about what it is that you do. Uh, you know, I think that I think that that is really um, that's almost it seems to me indicative of some amount of shame that they're that they can't even admit to their family what what it is that they're doing it's pretty pretty wild um and i I honestly think people who lie constantly as a profession can't turn that off mm, mm, yeah Uh, i mean and i think that's part of why you see you know so many politicians with personal scandals and things like that is because people who are pathological liars and who lie uh you know as a means of survival they, they, you know, they're not going to just turn that on and turn that off uh, easily. Right. Perhaps some can, but um, not all the time and not forever. Yeah. So, Julia, we really appreciate you taking the Absolutely. time. Um, where can where can people find your work and uh, talk to us about the lever and, and, and what y'all are doing over there? Yeah, the the lever is just a great investigative uh, news publication that everyone should be reading. We cover all things labor, politics, corporations, climate. Uh, we're at levernews.com and we're funded by our readers. Uh, so a lot of a lot of publications now are funded by billionaires or big foundations or corporate advertisements, but we're funded by the people who read us. So we really need subscribers. Subscriptions are pretty cheap. I think it's five to eight dollars a month right now. And you can find us at levernews.com um, or at levernews on Twitter. I'd really encourage everyone to subscribe. Uh, we rely on you all to keep doing stories like this. Julia, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. This and is I, great. You've, got, you've so got a subscriber from me for, for sure. So. <laughs> thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, right. I second that. Um, I also subscribe to the lever and um, I'm very glad uh, they put they put out a citizen's guide uh, to like investigative journalism, uh, which I found really cool to in- uh. just engage people on like, you know, what is it that investigative reporters do to kind of arrive at the truth and hold people accountable in, in government? And um, yeah, I just I like that. I like mm-hmm. the idea of, of getting your readers involved and kind of training them up on how to to go do these things and and ask these questions and and look for certain documents uh and do that research so yeah i'm i'm glad i subscribed Uh, i'm glad i ran across the article uh really appreciate it so uh the link is in the chat if you have not read julia's article definitely check it out yep 
Have we got Chris on the line? Yeah, we do have Chris on the line. We just got a jam-packed show today. Jam-packed. Uh, segment to segment. We are moving right along, and we have now on the line Chris Townsend, former um, international organizing director for the Amalgamated Transit Union. He was also staff for UE, the United Electrical Workers Union. and um, Returning guest, friend of the show. Returning guest, friend of the show. Uh, one of the big reasons that uh, William Z. Foster has had an, another day in the sun, so to speak. So, Chris, we really appreciate you coming on to talk to us again. Yeah, thanks uh, for having me. Uh, I, uh, I I am all of that and then some. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I appreciate the chance to talk about this strike. It's, uh, you know, everybody says that every strike is important, and this one certainly is to the transit union and uh it's an unnecessary strike but this is sadly mm -hmm. what the uh the world has turned into with uh you know the way that the politicians manage these things uh i it, maybe i'll just describe briefly what's at play in the strike or who what when where Yes, yes, absolutely. That we, we want to start yeah. with that. Who, what, when, where, and, and where are we at right now? I know that the strike has been going on for, for a few weeks. And then you personally have some background on the strike. You've been involved with some of these workers before this strike began. So I'm interested yeah. in, in going to that. But uh, but yeah, let's start sure. off with, with what what is going on in Loudoun County, Virginia. Yeah, this is, uh, thank you. Uh, this is the Amalgamated Transit Union. It is the largest of the bus and rail transit union. And in any event, it's out in Loudoun County, Virginia, which uh, is the far west suburbs of Washington, D.C. And it's an area that has totally been transformed in the last several decades from an old, sleepy, southern horse country run by reactionary Democrats and eventually Reagan Dem uh, Republicans. But it has shifted politically in a much more liberal direction. And uh, it's also grown immensely. And uh, the cost of living out there has gone through the roof. It's a bedroom community for a lot of very wealthy commuters that come down to Washington, D.C. So anyway, uh, it never had a transit system 30 years ago, but it over time developed one. And it now has 140 workers, plus management and whatever else they pay. Uh, you know, So it's become a substantial operation run by Loudoun County. And in any case, uh, when I was the organizing director of ATU, I went out there, uh, I guess it was 2016, the original group were the commuter bus operators. Uh, that was the largest group, and it uh, brought the white-collar commuters down to Washington, D.C. And in any case, I went out and met with them uh, in 2016 because they had been in another union. The other union kicked them out. It was a totally dissatisfying uh, experience. I won't go into it, but it it was uh, it was a broken situation. But there was still a core of workers that wanted a real union. So I went out and uh, rejected all those who poo pooed. Oh, you can't organize these people. There, they didn't want to belong to that union. They won't belong to this union. I mean, it was nonsense. I thought, no, I'll go out there. And back then, it was run by a different French multinational company called Transdev, thoroughly contemptible anti-union company, uh, separate from the current company, uh, which I'll get to in a second. But in any case, we had to go through one hell of a fight with the Transdev Corporation, including the company setting up an old-fashioned company union hmm. to try to keep us out. Well, it didn't work. We kept at it. We defeated them. 
organized an ATU group up there uh, with Transdev and managed to bargain a decent first contract. And uh, we're doing our thing. The pandemic comes. Well, the pandemic, as everyone can imagine, reduced the number of commuters dramatically. But it also was the time when the county was rebidding the contract uh, for the company that was going to operate. It's all private. It's a public agency, but it's a private company. So what do they do? They do their usual routine, which does not include due diligence about the company that's putting in the too-good-to-be-true low bid, which Mm -hmm. in this case was the Keolis Corporation which is essentially the French State Railways, uh, SNCF. It's a long-established company, big, huge in France, highly unionized in France. And then they set up shop over here uh, a number 20 years ago or so, and they're trying to put their own footprint in the United States. So here in Washington, D.C., they have two commuter groups and transit groups, Loudoun County and one down in Prince William County. So in any case, this uh, Keolis Corporation lands on the scene. We had dealt with this corporation in a few other places, including myself. I had had to go out to Las Vegas for a couple of months to uh, settle the ATU contract with Keolis there. Keolis operates the strip buses that you see when you're out there doing your tourism. But in any case, Keolis comes on the scene. The liberal Democrats who run the county now and I guess we'll say we're grateful for that. It's better than reactionary Republicans or worse. But those folks, again, not having done any due diligence about this situation, we essentially reached the point where we predicted this strike. They allowed this company, Keolis, onto the property, allowed them to bid low. And then uh, we go into immediately upon in 2021 and early 22 when Keolis assumed the service from the other company, the other French company, uh, they immediately attacked the workforce and refused to recognize the union, and we were off to the races. And what what took place then was a a full year or more of fight to just save the union. The employer was determined uh, to combine the unit commuter group with a new and growing group of paratransit workers who had been unorganized. Even though we represented a majority of them, they refused to recognize us. Unfair labor practice charges piled up to the ceiling. Uh, The workers were harassed and aggravated uh, with this. Here they had a union. Now here comes a new company. And no care was taken by the contracting politicians to ensure that their union would continue. So we had a life and death fight just to save the union. Well, we prevailed. We beat that back. And uh, our group then was the combined group which is who's on strike now. It's commuter coach, paratransit, mechanics, some other folks. And uh, from day one, Keolis had laid out, very at least they were honest, is that our goal is to destroy the union. And uh, we survived through this, uh, what was then the second union election that we had to win, and these workers had to endure to preserve the union. But then now uh, the company essentially says, hey, this is our last and final offer. Take it or leave it. The workers said, screw you. We're going to strike. And we've been on strike out there now for uh, more or less a month. And it's been, uh, you know, a, it's always a difficult thing uh, for workers. These are not highly paid workers. That's the problem. They're grossly underpaid compared to their peers here in the greater Washington, D.C. area. There's There's an awful lot of 
issues besides wages, health insurance. Imagine that, that in 2023, we still have workers who are you know, lodging health insurance problems as one of, and the cost of health insurance as one of their strike issues. So we've been out for about a month and I guess uh, I'll, I'll wrap up and then I know you guys want to have a discussion. Um, you know, this group of Democrats that run the county have sat on their hands for a month now. Now here they employ this corporation. They're the political leadership of the county that, that actually have a contract with this corporation to do this work. The company is not performing the work. And by that contract, they have the ability to penalize this company. Well, they won't do it. And they're not doing it. And it's shameful. And this goes on over and over again throughout the transit industry where you have the contracting political agency, which is really in cahoots with the company that they hired. I think what needs to happen here in Loudoun County is a significant investigation of this transit agency and its senior staff who are in cahoots with this corporation. They're not managing this corporation. They're cooperating with this corporation, not invoking the terms of their own contract and therefore extending the length of the strike because the corporation is not experiencing the kind of pinch that it would like the members are uh, when the, the strike comes on. So that may be a little bit of inside baseball for folks. But well, it, no, you know, I, don't, I don't think that's... that's I don't think that's inside baseball. I think that's incredibly important. And what are the are the elected officials who are responsible for managing this corporation? Are they giving any sort of justification for just ignoring the contract, the terms of the contract that they have with this with this entity? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm not. I'm retired now, although I live here and I've been in touch with workers up there. I mean, I knew I lived with these workers for years. I knew them. Mm-hmm. I helped feedback. Two, two, you know, both the tax that I mentioned and the ATU has local union, local 869 staff and international union staff working on this thing. But from a distance and what I've read in the media and what I've gleaned from speaking to people on, you know, that I'm acquainted with involved in this, that they're not, there's no, there's no explanation for why they won't invoke these penalties. Now, we know that one of the senior transit agency uh, spokespersons repeated the baloney that we hear other places, which is, oh, we can't get involved in the negotiations. Well, that's not quite true. What he's saying mm-hmm. is we won't get involved. We're too lazy, too afraid, too anti-union to get involved in this. And and I should stop and say, guys, the, the dilemma that we have here, when you go all the way back to the beginning, is that these transit agencies have to hire a professional staff to to run their own system. And they hire a senior staff from all over the country, very professional people, very learned in many cases, but incredibly anti-union in most Mm. cases. Uh, The business schools in the United States, the whole industry is anti-union. They have no respect for the workers' right to organize. At best, they'll consider the union sort of a necessary uh, and evil that they can't unload and get rid of. So as this slice of the transit agency management has become permeated with this anti-union bigotry, worse and worse with every year, it doesn't really matter who the political leadership is that's managing them. I mean, the effect to the Loudoun County workers here is the same whether they're Democrats, as we now see, or Republicans. Uh, we would have fully expected Republican political agency, for instance, the old Loudoun County 
regime would have handled it exactly the same. Don't invoke the contract. Don't penalize the company. Give them some slack. They'll starve the workers out. The union will either die down or go away. It's, well, we happen to have liberal Democrats who say the right things. But look, guys, we have a president of the United States, Joe Biden. What a sham. He's the most pro-union president. Well, he uses the word. That's something new. Uh, he'll show up at a union event. He'll take a lot of money from the labor movement. Mm. You could make the case he was probably elected because of the labor movement. But what did he do with the, the railroad uh, workers here most recently? Mercilessly, cynically crushed their strike over an issue that is a basic human right. I mean, this that's another discussion. But I mean, when you have the top Democrats setting the standard for complete, uh, you know, anti-unionism. Why would we expect it all the way down the mm. chain in Loudoun County that the Democratic Party there and the leadership would suddenly want to defy that and say, no, we're going to vigorously defend the rights of these workers and their union. It doesn't work that way in the United States. And any trade unionist who's been at it for at least two weeks uh, already knows this. Uh, I mean, a Democrat's at best are an unreliable occasional ally, but we're trapped. I mean, right. we have no allies elsewhere, uh, so we take what we can get. So anyway, the, the agency, uh, it, to my knowledge, as of late last week, uh, still had not invoked any of these penalties. And this is a strike that will continue until some of this justice is won by these workers. Uh, and, uh, you know, we've, de we've defeated this in other strikes here in the area, because maybe I'll mention that... Uh, the transit union here should be recognized for something, although the current leadership of the union seems oblivious to this. But in the period of time that I was the organizing director, we organized 13 new transit units in northern Virginia. Now, everybody knows there's people running all over creation, yelling up and down, jumping up and down, organize the South, organizing the South. I mean, you guys hear this all the time. I'm, right. I'm all for it, just like you are. But we've done it. In ATU, we've also organized several other transit agencies in other parts of the South. But, but this is what it means to get out here and do this. And then, of course, once you organize workers, you have to bargain a contract and you have to fight the tough fights. And this is a tough fight because, you know, the ATU is a very Democratic Party, an extremely Democratic Party oriented union. And now they find mm. themselves on strike uh, against a political leadership that is Democrat and is hiding out. Right. Best I can tell, uh, hoping that it will resolve one way or the other, and they won't have to get involved. Well, tough. I'm wondering if you could talk to us about some of the <clears throat> some of some of how this uh, 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 this transit system was unionized, because you know it's pretty impressive to the idea that this went from an unorganized unit of workers in the South that uh, that the union that now represents them, some of the some of the international leadership was saying, no, you know, there's really no use in, in organizing these folks to now these people have won two elections and are on a month long strike, which going on strike at all, the agreeing to go on strike, voting to go on strike, that in and of itself is a pretty big sign of, of a, uh, or it's a, um, you know, it's a sign of commitment to the cause, to each other, um, that a lot of people don't have. And then being able to uh, stay out on strike for a month is something that, 
you know, most workers in this country are never going to do. And these people have done it after having won, like you said, two elections. And so what was the process of, of you know, how, how did that happen? Well, I, I think in broad brush, what we've got here, and that's why I touched on it. I mean, we've got a labor movement and a left wing in this country that like to jump up and down or some like to jump up and down and make the demand to organize the South. Well, that's a great goal. And the fact is, in the ATU, we're doing it. There, I did it. Current organizing director is doing it. And that will continue. But I think the crisis is, I use that word crisis, the disastrous crisis, is that the vast majority of the trade union movement in the United States doesn't even attempt to organize in the South. There mm -hmm. are some who do, uh, to their tremendous credit. And ATU had that uh, concentration uh, and, and succeeded and found what you will find if you go out and talk to workers in the South, just like you'll find if you talk to workers just about anywhere else. They're horribly exploited, underpaid, benefits have been destroyed, uh, they're thrown away uh, at, a, at a moment's notice, and when the discussion comes up about trade unionism, if the union is serious to work with them and is willing to persist and be relentless about it, there's significant success can be had, but we find this crisis. I mean, here we are in Northern Virginia, just across the river from the District of Columbia in Maryland. Once you cross the Potomac River and enter Northern Virginia from that side, the union density drops by about 75%. Now, that's not because the population over here is any more or less pro or anti-union than on that side. It's because the amount of effort put forward by the trade union movement here in Northern Virginia is minuscule mm. compared to the other side. Now, some of this is frankly because it's a so-called right to work state. Nobody has to belong uh, to the union. The union has to earn its keep every single day and keep people in there making their uh, financial contribution and their activism contribution. And we dealt with that. I mean, you're not going to get everybody. And, and you're absolutely right. I mean, this was a remarkable organizing uh, group, I had total confidence that we could organize it because, again, we were doing other organizing in the region here, and I knew that this would work. The other union uh, kept trying to get people to ratify a contract that had a 25 cent per year uh, increase, and they tried repeatedly to get them to ratify it, and people just dropped out of that mm. union. And then that union did what they called disclaim them. They just wrote a letter and said, you're free to go. We have no longer any interest in this. And then a couple of them picked up the phone, called me at the International Union, and I said, sure, I'll come right out. And I went out, and it was, uh, it was, I wasn't sure how it was going to happen when I was driving out there, but I went out and uh, went into the garage, actually, and was conducting the union meeting with these folks to explain how ATU membership would work and how we would reorganize them, the kinds of goals and things that we would do well. The, even though it's a county garage, it's public property, the uh, transit uh, company at that time, Transdev, they of course had me, you know, they gave me the heave-ho off the property uh, under threat of arrest. So I said, screw you. And I went out and my pickup truck was on the public street. So I went up in the back of my pickup truck and I just conducted a lunchtime meeting. Uh, the commuter workers have a big, long break between their morning and afternoon. It's a split shift situation. So I ran a meeting with about 45 people 
in the street. And it was a, it was exciting because that. people mm -hmm. wanted organization. They didn't want a union that wouldn't listen to them. They didn't want a union that would decide for them what was best. They, they, they wanted a lot more than 25 cents an hour because again, it's an extremely, extremely wealthy area now in the top 10 uh, counties in the United States. And these workers right. can barely afford to live there because of the cost of housing among other things. So anyway, I, uh, you know, we started the ATU organizing that day in 2016. The next day, the Transdev Corporation, again, the predecessor company to Keolis, uh, set up a company union. It was very divisive and confusing, which is what it's for. And it, it took about six more months for workers to see that the company union was never going to answer any of the questions. And we started up our drive. We, we crushed them in an election. And uh, it was 65 to four, I think, in that first transdev election for ATU. And, you know, here we are. But then here comes Keolis barging into the situation, uh, underbidding dramatically the transdev corporation. Uh, and then the political leadership, even though it had improved on paper and mm. many unions, including ATU, had supported these Democrats out there, you know, they found themselves with a, a very bitterly anti-union company, I should mention. Uh, this was not uh, not because they talked to ATU. They conducted no due diligence. You might have thought that the contracting county would have said, hey, let's talk to at least one of the unions in the transit field to see what they know about the Keolis. Well, that never happened. Right. Never. And in any case, uh, the Keolis company had forced a strike uh, just a little more than a year ago in Reno, Nevada, on the Teamsters, who represent Keolis in Reno. And it was a multi, I think it was about a two month strike, very bitter strike. And uh, mm. their relationship out there was still horrible because of the anti-union nature of this company. Now, the Loudoun County folks, you know, were oblivious to that because they don't want to know this. They only want to know what the company will tell them. And uh, they're, they're like minded right. ideologies. Uh, when it comes to how they feel about workers and whatnot. Like I said, I mean, it, 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 folks can deny that. Folks can claim that they're not, in, well, they're bigots. They're anti-union bigots, either consciously or unconsciously. And uh, and one of the things I'm working on is, you know, we've got other unions in the Keolis company. Uh, Keolis in North America is a relatively small company. It's mostly rail. It does commuter rail. It does the Boston commuter rail, the heavy rail, and it does mm -hmm. the Alexandria, Northern Virginia rail system. And it has a sprinkling of a dozen or so bus systems around the country. And uh, I, I, we had already done some of this previously, but the different unions who work for the company need to be pulled together to have sort of a common knowledge of what's going on. And that will be a that will be a parallel event to the strike, but it will help. And uh, and the, the last thing I'll say, the the thing that the, the ATU and other unions need to draw from this is, is that I think the day has come that I predicted multiple times. Uh, the previous president of ATU, Larry Hanley, was well aware of this, that sooner or later, some company on the privatized end, there's about eight or nine privatized companies of any size that the ATU deals with, we knew that sooner or later one would emerge who would run a very anti-union program, a union liquidation program as part of their business model. 
to try to put a footprint into North America in a non-union uh, fashion, in an anti-union fashion. I think that day is here. I, it, it's certainly here with Transdev. That company has grown to become the second largest privatized company that ATU deals with. Now, here we have Keolis following in the footsteps. And, uh, you know, it's a, for them, it's a political, uh, it's an ideological fight. And I think this group of workers up there are really to be commended for having taken this on. This is a large multinational company. Uh, it's shameful that it's the French state railways doing right. this, but, but what's new in the United States? Uh, you know, workers are trashed. Uh, right. What's new about that? But anyway, these so workers has there. Has there been any movement in negotiations? Do we have any idea of of if there has been any movement or any any potential uh, like light at the end of the tunnel for uh, for these workers in the struggle? Um, I'll be careful because I'm not doing the bargaining and I am retired, mm -hmm. so I should be careful. But my best sense of it is is that the company essentially at the at the beginning of the strike, what precipitated the strike was they said, "Here's our final offer. Take it or leave it. Screw you." And the worker said, hell you, we're going to want to strike. And they've been on strike now for a month. Now, there have been some negotiations in there. I'm not involved in them and whatnot, but I don't, I'm unaware of any, today, I'm not unaware of any real indications that this thing is close to settlement or, you know, I think it will come together. The history of transit strikes in this fashion are that they last uh, a few weeks, a month or two, and that's that. I mean, at a certain point, you know, let's mention at least one time the worst victims of this entire thing, at least on the equal with what the workers have to do, which is the passenger. Right. I mean, the folks who run that transit agency have just unceremoniously dumped these human beings who depend on this service, uh, paratransit and commuter both and the other things. And and they've never even been mentioned in this hmm. conversation. ATU would be the only ally that they have. Um and it's uh, it's sad. I mean, can you imagine the bus system is just shut down because the agency will not invoke its own contract and bring the parties to bear. So there, the, the negotiations, uh, I believe, are sort of continuing, but the positions are pretty much dug in. And, uh, and it, it's going to take uh, an equalizer at some point in time. And I think that ATU and these workers are going to stand strong like we have at other places. We had a legendary strike uh, three years ago against the Transdev Corporation, also in Northern Virginia, at a place called the Cinderbed Road facility. That was an 84-day strike, and it was a tremendous victory for the union. But it took an 84-day strike mm -hmm. by a similarly sized group to defeat this, again, this anti-union bigotry that these corporations just bring with them uh, almost genetically. Yeah, and uh, this is Adam jumping in here. It, it just reminds me of our conversations we've had, you know, today, and of course over the last two years about Warrior Met Cole, who has a very similar mentality uh, regarding the the UMWA members down in Brookwood, and it's right. clear that it's really not about money. I mean, they they would make more money had they settled the strike, uh, you know, twenty months ago, uh, but what they are committed to doing is trying to bust the union. And, uh, yeah, I appreciate you, you know, you naming that for what it is. It is a, a, yeah. an anti-union bigotry that is ingrained in the management of these companies uh, and in so many of the politicians who are supposed to be overseeing these companies. That's right. 
Yeah. Well, when I was when I was a kid 44 years ago, joining the ATU the first time, and I, I have, as you mentioned, Jacob, I, I have belonged and worked for other unions. But when I was trained by the old timers, they always said to me, there's a three-headed hydra of evil here that we're going to be up against. We're going to be up against racists, anti-Semites, and anti-union bigots. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe we've made some progress on the racism and the anti-Semitism. Hallelujah for that, limited as it may be, but some progress. We haven't made any progress on the anti-union bigotry. Uh, Organizing and conducting your union work today in the United States is a virtually illegal act, and uh, and it shouldn't be. I mean, the the stated goal of the National Labor Relations Board, this would at least cover the private sector worker, is to be an advocate for the workers, to equalize what is a grossly unequal situation. Well, the theme of that is long ago been lost. It's been polluted with corporate ideology. The anti-union bigotry has seeped back in, with some exceptions. There are always some politicians and some NLRB staff, and you know who will stick up for this. But it's not enough. It's not, and and the proof of that assertion would be: look at the condition of the working class today. What an appalling third-world condition in many industries, getting worse which is why I think we're seeing increasing rebellions like this uh, strike and uh, and in all the other places, Starbucks being a fine example of that, Amazon, Trader Joe's, and all the more conventional industries, high-tech even. Who could have imagined high-tech workers, Google, Apple, joining a union? Well, at a certain point, people are driven to the limit, and they rebel. And uh, I welcome it. And uh, I know you guys do too. Uh, Hell there's yeah. going to have to be some, some thunder before the rain. Here we go. Absolutely. Chris Townsend, thank you so much for taking the time with us again today. We appreciate it. Thank you both. Good luck. All right. Appreciate it, Chris. Bye-bye. So, Adam, we had uh, prepared uh, three other quick hits. Do we want to just hold those for next week, or do we want to try to uh, run through them really quick since they're kind of like newsy type stuff? Let's see what we got here. Um the Disney, the REI, and... Uh, you know, I'm, I'm okay if you want to go ahead and, and let's, let's go ahead and talk about those real quick and um, put it out there, and we can always expand next week um, as those stories yeah. develop. So uh, for this Disney story, just I, I want to make sure that I, that I plug this. I'm pulling all of my information on this Disney story minus my comments and analysis from uh, McKenna Schuler. Friend of the show, even though we've never had her on, we definitely should. Um, I, I've talked to her on a few occasions, uh, spent some time with her at Labor Notes in Chicago last summer. Uh, she is a staff writer for the Orlando Weekly. Uh, so definitely check out her article about uh, uh, about the contract negotiations. It's titled, Disney World Workers Overwhelmingly Stand Together, Vote No on Companies Offer Planning to Fight for Better Pay. Uh, check that out. It's at the Orlando Weekly. Uh, great reporter, committed to you know representing things accurately and from the perspective of working people. Uh, and but the status is that uh, they've been negotiating the unions, the six unions representing Disney World workers, forty-two thousand Disney World workers have been negotiating for several months, and uh, the the last best and final from Disney World is only a dollar an hour raise. Uh, for these workers, and um, so 
the workers are coming back and saying, you know, that's not enough uh, as we're, you know, fighting to survive um, in a cost of living crisis. You know, a lot of us are making uh, not very much above the state's minimum wage um, and we're, you know, working fairly long hours. And so, you know, they said no. They voted, the, the unions sent it to the members for a vote with a recommendation that they vote it down and vote it down they did. 96% of the workers who voted voted no. So that is a huge rebuke uh, to Disney. And it's funny that um, you know what they're one of the things that they're asking for is I think a, a three dollar an hour raise, uh, which is certainly doable for a corporation as profitable as Disney. Um, but some of the some of the workers were actually in this contract offered an immediate three dollar an hour raise. Um, uh, such as like I think uh, some of the custodial workers were offered a raise, uh, offered that raise. But even they, they've got pictures of these people who are in you know these units that would get that three dollar an hour raise. That you know have pictures of them saying that or videos saying that you know I'm voting no because everybody deserves this raise, which is a very 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 cool thing to see. Um, the three dollar an hour raise would be- bring the starting wage at Disney up to eighteen an hour from. 15 an hour with additional raises to come over the course of the contract. Um, and workers say that that's the least that they can do. Um, Unite Here Local 737, which is one of the unions representing Disney workers, put out a report last year uh, saying that out of 2,415 tourism workers surveyed, uh, including Disney workers, 69% of them said that they hadn't had money to pay rent or mortgage costs over the last year. 26% say they had to move as a result of rent or mortgage increases. And 45% reported skipping meals to cut costs. Mm. Uh, Just for reference, she includes in this article that a living hourly wage for two working adults with one child in Orange County is $32.51 an hour, according to the MIT's living wage calculator, or $18.85 for a single working adult with no children. So it it would take $18 an hour to have a sustainable living wage for a single working adult with no children, which is basically like the least expensive household you could possibly have, right? And the wages that these unions are asking for is still ultimately, <clears throat> the starting wage would ultimately be a little bit below that living wage that the MIT calculator puts out. So it is you it's know, totally a reasonable request. Absolutely. From the unions. And reminiscent of what we just heard from Chris Townsend yeah. about, you know, workers who are in an area where they can hardly afford to live, right? I mean, and that's a trend that we're seeing across the country. We're seeing it right here in Huntsville, Alabama, where the folks who are doing the work for the community uh, don't necessarily make enough to even live in that community anymore. And they're being pushed out of their own homes. McKenna Schuler, the reporter uh, for the Orlando, Orlando Weekly who wrote this report, uh, points out that, you know, while all of this is happening, like on the worker side, you know, this is this is what they're going through. People are having to skip meals. People are asking for <laughs> less than a living wage for a starting wage. Uh, Disney Parks Division, just the Parks Division, just the part like this is not, you know, their, their media empire. Disney Parks reported 28 billion in revenue last year and an operating profit a profit 
which let's remember profit is like revenue minus expenses of 12 billion dollars 12 billion dollars disney's uh disney has found the money to pay ceo bob Iger 27 million dollars and to gift the former ceo just as a gift a gift who was fired in november uh uh a 20 million dollar severance package Ooh wee could you imagine getting like a ten thousand dollar severance package like <laughs> yeah any like, severance package <clears throat> any severance package is a win for any for most workers but 20 million dollars and they are lowballing these workers over a three dollar an hour raise here's a very i mean mckenna is just so great we've got it we've got it i i i thought about asking her to come on the show to talk about this but i was like we got too many guests on the show already we've got too much to talk about we're gonna have to do it quick she's great but she points out that during the 2020 election cycle the woke corporation also found the money to give the re-election campaign of florida governor Ron DeSantis fifty thousand dollars in march of 2021 and another fifty thousand dollars two years before that hmm uh, the vote came days after uh, food service workers, and we mentioned this in, in last week in Southern Labor. This vote came just days after food service workers at the Orange County Convention Center won a new contract, delivering on the $18 an hour minimum wage that these offers uh, that these unions are uh, fighting for, up from a $13 an hour minimum wage, which is like a huge increase, uh, and a $3 pay raise for every worker covered by the contract. So very, very cool stuff. It also comes the same day multiple media outlets confirmed that Florida lawmakers will hold a special legislative session Monday to discuss a state takeover of Dis Disney World's Reedy Creek Improvement District, among other issues. So that's, you know, a fascinating little wrinkle. I wonder what, what the deal is there. Uh, but maybe we will get McKenna Schuler on at some point to talk about this as this plays out. Yeah, and I'd absolutely love to know what the unions are thinking about this potential takeover and how it may affect their members. Uh, you know, hopefully the fact that 96 percent voted down this crappy deal, mm -hmm. um, I hope is a good sign that there's a, a you know, a pretty well organized membership down there that's ready to f ready to take on whatever's coming next. Uh, so the REI story that I mentioned, REI has been, uh, you know, REI workers have been unionizing with RWDSU across the country, and the latest to organize is in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, where they have filed for a union election already, and this is a fantastic story because it really shows the power of uh, collective action and worker solidarity. Uh, REI sought to challenge the election uh, and extend, which would, you know, potentially extend the process for weeks, right? And uh, REI workers walked off the job and that same day, REI backed down and now the election is, uh, is set for March the 3rd. So really fantastic stuff. Uh, saw this on my Twitter feed from Noam Scheiber. He is a labor reporter for the New York Times. Um, great reporter, definitely recommend uh, checking out his work, uh, and he tweeted out a um, a uh, uh, a press release from RWDSU uh, saying that the REI Cleveland strike moves company to negotiate election agreement minutes before the NLRB hearing. Fantastic. Uh, so now the union reports that the union election will move ahead on March the 3rd, 2023, with all NLRB, NLRA eligible workers. A complete reversal 
a complete reversal of REI's initial position. And they uh, uh, they go more in depth saying that today at 1.30 p.m. Eastern time, REI agreed to terms of an election agreement with the Retail Wholesale and Department Store Union and the Cleveland office of the NLRB. The agreement was met immediately following workers walking out this morning on a ULP strike demanding the right to vote in a free and fair NLRB election and for the company to stop its unlawful surveillance of workers. The workers intend to unconditionally return to work this afternoon. Uh, the agreement includes all NLRA eligible workers at the Ohio store, which is a reversal from the REI's position last week. The union election will take place on March 3rd, 2023 from 12 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern time at the Ohio store. So really great win. And Noam uh, remarks later down in the thread that this is one thing that he's learned covering labor over the past several years, which is that your labor rights are typically only as robust as the power that you and your coworkers can muster at the workplace. Absolutely. Direct action, getting the goods. Yep. Yep. So definitely wanted to relay that to y'all. And uh, with that, I think, I think that we're going to go ahead and wrap, right? Uh, yeah, sounds great. Uh, I know next week we'll probably uh, touch on some of the international labor news that's happening. Uh, wanted to just real quick send love and solidarity and support to the striking workers in France and in the UK and uh, and across across the globe. Really, there's mm-hmm. you know labor rebellion happening all over. It's not just here in the South, not just here in, in the United States. Uh, some really interesting developments happening, um, you know, across the pond uh, over there in Europe. So we'll probably talk a little bit more about that next week. Uh, just your final reminder that if you would would like to donate to the February fundraiser, tvlr.fm/expand. That is our special fundraising link. Uh, of course, you can always go to tvlr.fm slash donate if you just want to um, sign up as a regular contributor. That's, you know, the normal donation link. And you can sign up, you know, for a monthly donation of $1, $5, whatever, you know, you may be able to afford. Um, and again, I wanted to emphasize that we recognize not everybody's in a position where they can, uh, they can donate. So liking, sharing, commenting, uh, subscribing, reviewing, uh, and talking to folks about the program and what we're trying to do is a huge, huge benefit that we really appreciate and, uh, you know, wouldn't be able to do it without that kind of support. Absolutely. Uh, And with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up. We appreciate y'all hanging out with us. And uh, until next week, see you later. All power 